My name is John. I'm one of the pastors here at Anderson Hills. We are continuing our redemption series. This is a series leading up to Easter where we were looking at some stories of how God saves us. Uh, it's a perfect thing to talk about as we look to when Jesus gave his life for us and then rose again on the third day. We've been in the Old Testament. We're going to stick there today, uh, which the first section of the Bible, and it has, we've learned from the prophet Jeremiah that when we are willing to be soft clay in God's hands, that God can use us to be exactly the people God created us to be. And God can do amazing things. Last week we learned through Hosea that God will stop at nothing to reach us, that nothing can separate us from God's love. It's that great of a love. And this week... You know, those prophets come from later in the Old Testament towards getting close to the end. Uh, we're going to go back a few hundred years earlier to a time before, the, before Israel had kings. Uh, this is a time they've left Egypt, they've come into the promised land, uh, they've overtaken most of it, and now they are being uh, ruled by what's called judges. And the time of judges was really a chaotic time for Israel, uh, politically, morally, so many ways. The Bible says that everybody did what was right in their own eyes. You see, God had given them the law, but they weren't really living it out very well. And so there would be times where they would be obedient to God and things were good, but then they would begin to disobey, go their own way, and their enemies would begin to have victory over them. They would get desperate, they'd cry out to the Lord for help, and he'd send them a judge to lead them. Well, today, instead of looking at the book of Judges, we're going to look at a story that takes place during that time. And it's a, a very intimate story of one particular family uh, here in Israel. And it's a family connected with a woman named Ruth. Now, Ruth is really interesting because she's not an Israelite. She actually comes from a neighboring country called Moab, just around the other side of the Dead Sea. And, and Ruth's story is very interesting how, about how she becomes an Israelite and how God uses her in ways bigger than what we'd ever imagined possible. So there was a, there was a family in Israel, and uh, we, but, but before we get into all their story, we need to understand some key differences in the way their world worked and the way our world works, because they're very different in many ways, especially as it relates uh, to marriage, to property ownership, uh, and to the role of women in society. The, the Bible describes a world that's much different than ours, especially in the Old Testament there, and it's important to remember that the way things were, not all of it was prescribed by God. A lot of it was simply how the culture functioned at that point. So it's not to say that these things are the right way of doing things, but they were the way that they were done back then. So when it comes uh, to marriage, marriage was quite different than it is today. You know, here we're used to the idea that you meet somebody, you start dating, you fall in love, uh, you decide to get married, and you promise to spend the rest of your life together. It's a really beautiful thing. But for them, marriage was more of an economic partnership between two families. So if you had kids, you would typically arrange who they were going to marry. Okay? It would be the parents talking to the parents of another family saying, hey, let's, you know, it would be good if our kids married, right? This might, this might be beneficial for both of us. I know this sounds pretty crazy to us, right? If you imagine if you're married when you met your spouse or if you're single, if there's a person you were interested in at some point, you imagine coming home 
and you're talking to your mom and dad, you're really excited, right? Like, let me tell you about this person, like, like he's great and awesome, and I just, I, I, I'm so excited, right? Like, I, I think this, this could really be the one, right? And they're like, oh, well, that's interesting, but he's not the one. We've already decided. Uh, Chuck's the one, right? We know because Chuck has a really great tractor, okay? And we need a tractor. That's just, I mean, if we're going to be really good at this farming stuff, we need a new tractor, right? And there's Chuck, and yeah, I mean, I know he's kind of, you know, the receding hairline, the dad bottle. Don't worry about that, though. He's got a great tractor, let me tell you. To us, that sounds kind of dumb, I know, but that's how it was for them. Uh, I'm probably overgeneralizing, but it, marriages were arranged. They, they were typically arranged at that time. Also, um, it's important to know that, that women, we've talked about this before, but women didn't have the same ability to work uh, and make significant money. Uh, they worked, but didn't have the ability to, to generate the same kind of income that we have in our culture. A lot of things have improved for us, which is really good. But in those days, um, property was always passed down through male heirs. And, and men were the economic drivers of society. So if you were a woman, again, this isn't really prescribed by God, but it was the way things were, but, but women in those times, their primary goal was to be able to have male sons. All sons are male, I get that. <laughs> male children. I'm not using notes, I don't know what to tell you, <laughs> sorry. Their goal was to have, have children who were boys, because boys, that's how property was passed down generation after generation. That's who was going to take over the family business. And most importantly, that's who's going to take care of mom and dad when they get old, right? We don't have social security, we don't have the stock market, all this kind of stuff. We have boys who are going to keep running the family business, who are going to take care of us. Okay, so that kind of helps us understand how their world worked in different ways than ours. So there's this family, uh, Naomi is, is the woman, Elimelech is the man, and they have two sons. We've got a little family tree here, Chilion and Melon, um, they are the, their boys. Things are going pretty well for them until a famine strikes. And so times are tough in Israel, and they decide to move over to Moab, this other country nearby. Because in Moab, you've got more food available at that time. So they move there, uh, they kind of relocate for a season. Life is going pretty well until a tragedy strikes and Elimelech dies. So Naomi is left as a widow, and imagine how painful and difficult that is. Many of you know that pain, and it's very, very difficult to lose someone that you love. But bigger than that, she had a hope because she had her two boys. And so that means she's got hope for the future, that this isn't, uh, this, this isn't as, it's terrible, but it's not as bad as what it could have been. So the two boys, they get married um, to Ruth and Orpah, who are two Moabite women, because they live in Moab, naturally. Uh, so they get married and, uh, and things are going all right for them until tragedy strikes once again, and both Melon and Chilion pass away. If you are Naomi, this is the worst imaginable situation. Because now it's not just one, you have three widows here, part of this household, and, and you have nobody to pass. If you're Naomi, you have nobody to pass your legacy on. She's too old to have any more kids, and she can't re remarry and all this kind of stuff. And so life seems 
absolutely horrible for her. I mean, we understand perhaps some of the grief, and that was very real, but it was not only grief, but it was really everything that she had worked in her life for is gone. The, the, her ability to pass her family's legacy on, gone, wiped out. So she's really hurting here. This is extremely painful and difficult time in her life. And, and so she, she does really the only logical thing that she could do at this point. She decides to head back to Israel, where her land is at, and where hopefully she can find a family member that would be kind to her. Ruth 1, verse 8, Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go back to your mother's homes, and may the Lord reward you for your kindness to your husbands and to me. May the Lord bless you with the security of another marriage. Marriage equals security in that culture. So she kissed them goodbye, and they all broke down and wept. No, they said, we want to go with you to your people. Now, that's a strange idea. They don't, they're not from Israel, and so moving to another country to go to this new land and all this stuff seems kind of odd. You wouldn't expect them to say that, uh, because they weren't from there. They should go back to their parents' home uh, for a time being. They should find new husbands. They should remarry. They should have children. Life should continue for them. It was a very shocking thing for them to say that they wanted to do this. Uh, first, like I said, for that reason, for the practical economic reason. And second, maybe in our culture, we would add that Naomi was their mother-in-law, after all, and some of you are afraid of going on vacation with your mother-in-law, much less moving to a new country, right? So this seemed to be, others of you have great mother-in-law relationships, that's awesome, but this seems a little bit out there, right? I want to move to another country with my mother-in-law to uh, restart life in a place I don't know. Naomi, really, uh, she speaks up about where she's at, because quite frankly, She's really hurting. She's in a rough spot. If ever there was a time to leave Naomi behind in your Ruth and Orpah, this would be an easy time because she's just, she's really upset as well. In fact, Naomi, the name ironically meant pleasant, and her life is anything but pleasant. Verse 20, don't call me Naomi, she responded. Instead, call me Mara. For the Almighty has made life very bitter for me. Mara means bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me home empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has caused me to suffer? And the Almighty has brought such a great tragedy upon me. You might hear a, sim a similar talk to the book of Job, right? I had all of these things, and now I have nothing. God what are you doing? Why are you so mad? What could I possibly have done to deserve this kind of thing? Don't, stop calling me pleasant, okay? That, that's almost hurtful to hear that word. I'm not pleasant, I'm bitter. And I've got good reason to be bitter. Maybe you know a bit of what that feels like. You've had so many good things and, and you've lost something that really matters. You've lost your spouse, or child, or a grandchild, or perhaps it was a, a, a business loss or an economic pain. Maybe it was the loss of a dear friendship or the distance between you and some relatives who really matter to you. 
Maybe it's the loss of, of health and you just don't feel that I can do the things I used to be able to do. Maybe it's a loss of meaning or purpose. And we look at God and say, God, what are you doing? I'm hurting. I'm angry. Why would you do this to me? And you know, one of the interesting things in this is that Naomi's really not criticized for this prayer. The Bible doesn't speak against it. In fact, there are many people who pray these or say these kinds of things in the Bible. God doesn't strike her down. And, and these words are uncomfortable for us, especially if we're hearing them from a friend, right? And you remember the book of Job when Job is lamenting to his friends? And at first the friends just kind of sit and they listen and care. And they're really good friends. And then they open their mouth and they're bad friends, right? <laughs> because they start trying to give all these excuses and trying to blame and trying to blame Job and try all these kind of things. Sometimes we just need to shut it and listen and love people. That can be a very holy and honoring thing when our friends are going through pain. And you know, if you're going through pain, it's all right to be honest with people. You need a few people around you that you can just speak the truth and say, here's where I'm at and I'm hurting. I need your love. I need your support. I need your prayers. That's a good thing. God didn't make us to do this life alone, you know. And so we need one another and we need the Lord. Well, one of Naomi's daughters-in-laws, Orpah, she decides to go back home to follow Naomi's advice. It was a logical and right thing to do. N nothing could be criticized about that decision. It's fair enough. But Ruth, not so much. Ruth makes a very interesting decision. Despite where Naomi's at, despite how angry and, by her own account, bitter she is, Ruth decides she wants to go with Naomi. Verse 16, Ruth replied, don't ask me to leave you and turn back. And here's the key verses of the book. Wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you live, I will live. Your people will be my people and your God will be my God. Wherever you die, I will die and there I will be buried. May the Lord punish me severely if I allow anything but death to separate us. When Naomi said or saw that Ruth was determined to go with her, she said nothing more. <laughs> I think that's kind of almost comical, right? Like Ruth makes this incredible profession of loyalty and Naomi's like, she's hurt. She's hurting. She realizes she can't convince Ruth to stay, so <laughs> all right, Ruth, let's go. It's a pretty amazing act of faithfulness by Ruth. And I think one of the things we could see in this passage is um, how God can use our faithfulness to help others. And God here uses Ruth, a woman who also is in a really bad position, who really doesn't have, we would think doesn't have a lot to offer. I mean, she too is in a bad financial position. She too is grieving the loss of her husband. She too is in a world where this is going to be difficult. But one of the, I think one of the things that inspires me about young leaders is that they oftentimes have, they don't have the same life experience that everybody else has, right? And so they haven't been through all the pains and whatnot that sometimes make us give up that the Lord could really be faithful because we've been through a lot. And so sometimes when we face tragedy, it's just, oh, here we go again. I've been down this road. I know this road. It's just, it's going to stink. And, and yeah, life does sometimes. That happens. But sometimes, sometimes uh, people like Ruth, younger leaders, can, can see 
I know in my life they've done this before. They, they can see like opportunity that maybe I had kind of just pushed to the side. Maybe I just determined it's not going to happen. That there's this hope, this, this new world of like possibility. And I think, at least for me, my life's been blessed by being around people like that. And Ruth is going to bless uh, Naomi, but also in a very special way. You see, Ruth had something that Naomi didn't, and that is that Ruth had the ability to have a child. She was young enough that she could do this. And I wonder if Ruth sensed that maybe the Lord would use her. I think it's interesting how she says, your God will be my God. You see, Moabites, they had their own idols. They had their own idols. So, Ruth, why not go home, go back to your parents' gods? It hasn't worked out very well for you, so why not go back to that? Well, I tend to think that Ruth had encountered the power of the living God. That she had seen that this God of Israel is different than the fake idols that she's been raised around. And, and Naomi, I want that God to be my God. I've experienced your God, and he's real, and he's powerful. And I, I will leave my people, I will leave my family, I will leave all this stuff because I want to be there for you, and I want to have a relationship with your God. So they do it. They move back. They move back into Naomi's old neighborhood. Naomi's land is still there, uh, but, but there's a lot of difficulty. they got to get to work. And what are you going to work? What are you going to do? There's not a lot of options in, in that society. So it's harvest time, uh, they, they, the time they harvest the barley, and here's how that would work for them. Um, if you own land, you typically needed to hire some folks to help you out at this time to get all your crops in. Uh, so the owner would hire uh, working men who'd come through with sickles, and they would cut down the barley and keep on moving. Behind them would be some hired women um, who would come through and, and bundle it up. And it would be loaded onto carts where they would be taken and they would continue the processing work there. So after those women who were hired to do that, the poor widows were allowed to come in and to harvest behind them because the law had made this possible. One of the things about the Old Testament and the Bible is that there's a deep care for those who are hurting, a deep care for the widow, the orphan, for, for the poor. And that's something that's central to our faith. It's not okay just to have a lot and not worry about those in need. We, we need to care for those who are in need. The Bible had built this in. Leviticus 19.9 says it this way. Um, it says that in your fields, it, uh, whoops, that's not what I was looking for. Um, is there a Leviticus? There we go. Uh, when you harvest the crops of your land, do not harvest the grain along the edges of your field, and do not pick up what the harvesters drop. So in other words, when you're turning your plow, don't take the time to go into the corner and get that. Nope, leave that for the widows to harvest. They're going to get that. Kind of take a wide turn and leave that for them. And when you're picking up the barley, you drop some, you can't pick it up. You leave that because the, the widows are going to come behind you, and this is how they're going to support themselves. This is going to be their harvest, right? So you've got to do that. So, so this is the way that they would harvest. So Naomi is familiar with this. So she sends uh, Ruth out into the fields to go out and to do this work. And it's really interesting how God opens the door. Ruth chapter 2, verse 3. So Ruth went out to gather grain behind the harvesters. As it happened, she found herself working in a field that belonged to Boaz, the relative of her father-in-law, Elimelech. <laughs> that as it happened, I think there's like a wink inserted there, right? 
Oh, look at this little coincidence, if you will. Ruth goes out, and oh, look, it's a relative of hers, right? Somebody who might actually care about their fate. That this isn't a coincidence. This is a God incidence, right? This is God opening up a door, and we see God's providence for Ruth and Naomi in, in the midst of this. So Ruth is working, and Boaz comes along, and he says to the foreman, hey, who's, who's the new girl there? What, what's her story? He says, oh, well, this is Ruth. She's the daughter-in-law of Naomi, but they've been through all this loss. She's from Moab. She moved here to help out Naomi. She's really, you know, kind and caring, trying to help her mother-in-law out. And Boaz is struck by Ruth's kindness, uh, that he realizes she didn't need to do this, and there must be something special about a person who would do this. So Boaz gives special instructions. He says to the harvesters, he says, hey, if, if Ruth's following you, um, you know, if, if you're bundling stuff up, be a little extra clumsy, okay? Drop a little extra for Ruth and let her have that. And then when lunchtime came around, he invited Ruth to come and eat with the hired people, which was very uncommon. The widows, they had to eat off on their own. Meal wasn't provided by the owner of the field. But he says, no, you can come and you can eat with my workers. So he's treating her like at least a worker or maybe even like family here. Okay? He's treating her better than he had to. The law said you got to do it at this level, but Boaz is doing it at this level because he's been inspired uh, by Ruth's kindness here. So Ruth goes home and she tells Naomi about this, this wealthy, generous, kind man named Boaz that she's, that she's met. And, and our minds immediately start going to, to, like, Cinderella, right, at this point, right? Disney has baked this into us really well. We know how the story is supposed to go, right? You can see the, this budding romance here, right, between them, you know. And she goes home, and she says, Naomi, I've, I've met this great guy, and he's something special. And Naomi goes, oh, yes, he is. He's our relative. What? <laughs> That's not, that's not how these stories are supposed to go, right? <laughs> like, we, we, don't, we don't do that. We're not cool with marrying our second cousin here or whatever, right? What's going to happen? Well, of course, Boaz is not a blood relative to Ruth. She's, she's a foreigner, right? Um, but, but seriously, this, this doesn't have quite the same makings of a good romance story, right? The, the young and the restless Ruth is harvesting in the field, working hard, and the, the brawny and buff Boaz sees her, and their eyes meet, and, and, he, and he cares about her, and he is kind to her, and he is good to her, and he is her second cousin. Tune in later to Jerry Springer and find out all about it, right? Oh, no. This isn't what we wanted, right? But the fact is, this isn't really a romance story. Like I said, this is like a, a, another version of the Job account, really. You see, what's happening here, it actually plays very directly into is how the, the law worked there in, in Israel. You see, the law said that if a man's brother dies, if, he is, if his man's brother is married and dies, if that man who survives is able to, he is actually legally responsible to marry his brother's wife 
and to, uh, to have children with her so that his brother's legacy can continue. Remember, brother's family name, brother's uh, land, all this stuff, it passes down through male heirs, right? So if, if, if the wife doesn't have any kids, this is like the brother's job. Well, well, Boaz isn't that close to the family, but he's a more distant relative. That relationship in the Bible is called the kinsman-redeemer. Okay? And this kinsman redeemer was responsible to do this. Now, I know it sounds crazy to you, right? Like, you probably have never been so thankful to know that your brother has life insurance, right? <laughs> like, I'll pay for your life insurance, right? That's fine. I, uh, you know, not want to do that. But in their society, you don't have life insurance. This is how it works. This is how we care for the widows. This is how we care for these are, those who are in need. This is how we keep passing down our family legacy. So long story short, Naomi says, Ruth, this is great news because he is a relative. Uh, you could go and you could propose that he would be this kind of kinsman redeemer for you. So Ruth does that and, uh, she, and Boaz wants to do that, but he says, actually, there's another relative who's first in line. I don't have legal standing to do that. So he goes to that relative. He says, hey, here's the deal. Here's Ruth, Naomi. Here's our situation. You are the kinsman redeemer. Do you want to do this? Do you want to take over this estate? Do you want to take uh, this widow as your wife? And he says, no. He says, I, basically, I don't have the money for that. That would endanger my own estate. And so if he didn't have that, he could legally pass. At this point, Ruth's in serious trouble because he's the one whose duty it was to do that, and he's not going to do that. Boaz is not obligated to step in as kinsman redeemer, but he does. And here you see a parallel. You see this, this good, loving, caring woman, Ruth, who leaves her family, who leaves her home to, be, to care for her mother-in-law, for someone who had no future, who had no hope in their society. And now Boaz sees Ruth and sees her kindness and her generosity, and he steps up as the perfect spouse for a woman of that kind of character, for a woman of that kind of, that, that kind of character who loves the Lord and who loves her mother-in-law so much that she would do that. So Boaz goes and he does all the legal stuff and he takes Ruth as his wife and they have a son. That son's name is Obed, right? And it's, it's so amazing because, you know, we'd say, and they take Obed, they, they, they lay Obed in Naomi's lap as a sign of the fact that this is Naomi's heir. This is Naomi's grandson. This is the one who gives Naomi hope that life's going to be okay. That your husband has died, but he's not forgotten. You're not forgotten. No, God has blessed you with a daughter-in-law and a new son-in-law and now a new grandbaby to carry on the family legacy. We'd say, wow, what an awesome story, right? Like how it, it does our heart well to hear how God blesses kindness and generosity and all that. And that's all 100% true. And there's a lot of great takeaways. But there's one that's even greater than that. And it comes at the end of the book. It talks about 
this family here, and, and, and it says that Boaz was the father of Obed. That's the son of Ruth and Boaz, okay? Boaz was the father of Obed. Obed was the father of Jesse. Jesse, the father of David, right? So here you've got the family tree is complete, and you have what will lead up to David, the greatest king in Israel's history. Isn't that interesting? That like the great-grandma of Israel's greatest king is a foreigner, is a, a widow, is a person who had very had no standing really in Israelite society, and yet God uses her, God uses Ruth to bring about David. But not just David, you might remember there's another one who's very famous, born of the house of David, and his name is Jesus. And now we get a new picture of who Boaz is. Boaz is not just a good, generous guy. No, Boaz, we would say, is a foreshadow of Jesus Christ. Boaz shows us a, a shadow version of who Jesus is. Boaz is a kinsman redeemer to them, and Jesus, he's the ultimate kinsman redeemer. So when we see ourselves, again, we always want to see ourselves as the good people in the story, right? And Boaz is, he, he's like one of the cleanest guys in the Old Testament, right? Nothing bad is said about him. You don't have any stories of him going off doing stupid stuff. We don't know if he did or not, but at least it doesn't tell us about it. But Boaz is like this foreshadowing of Jesus. And what we see is, I'm Naomi. I'm the one who was hopeless, the Bible says, I was dead in my sins. I was lost in my transgressions. My sins had separated me from my God. So there wasn't a hope. There wasn't a future. There, I'm separated from God by sin. I can't solve that problem. I can't just be better than my neighbor. I can't just try a little harder. I can't, I can't just, you know, be decent enough to be better than average. And God's like, eh, okay, we'll let him in. No problem. It's not how it works. God is holy, God is righteous, God is perfect, and I am not. Not even close. All we like sheep, we've gone astray, we've turned everyone to his own way, but the Lord laid on Jesus the sins of all of us. That, that when Jesus went to the cross, that he was your redeemer and my redeemer. That he gave himself for us. So what we see through this passage is not just that Jesus is like Boaz, but Jesus is a better Boaz. We see a picture of Jesus and his love. God, John, 1 John 4, 9, God showed us how much he loved us by sending his one and only son to the world that we might have eternal life through him. This is real love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as a sacrifice to take away our sins. Dear friends, since God loved us that much, we ought also to love one another. We were the destitute. We were the, the empty. We were the bitter. We were the ones with no future. That was us times a million. And God steps in and he redeems us. So Jesus is better than Boaz. How? Well, first, Boaz redeemed one family. That's admirable. But Jesus, he redeemed all of us. 
He gave his life for every family, every individual, for every nation, tribe, and tongue. Jesus gave his life for everybody. His gift is good news, not just for us here at Anderson Hills, but for the whole world. That's why missions is so important to us, because we don't have this news just for ourselves. We have it to share with everybody. And we want to get the gospel out to the entire world because this, this redeemer of ours is actually the redeemer of the whole world. But everybody's got to make this decision to choose. John 1, 12. To, but to all who believed in him and accepted him, to them he gave the right to become the children of God. He gave us this right because of what he did. His gift is not just local. His gift is global, and it is awesome. To every Naomi, every hurting, bitter, lost person, Jesus loves you. Jesus gave his life for you. Jesus gave it all. Second, Boaz, he was reactive where Jesus was proactive. People, we can just see problems and, and help with problems. We're kind of limited in that way, and that's okay. Not Jesus. He sees everything. He knows everything. That Jesus knew before you and I were ever born, he knew what we'd be like. He knew how much we would need redeeming. He knew all of your days before you lived them. And he went to the cross and gave his life for you before you could even say yes. It's a proactive thing. His grace is a proactive gift in your life. God loved you before you even entered this world. If you think your life doesn't matter, friend, you are mistaken. He loves you better than anybody will ever love you. His gift is greater than any gift you'll ever receive. His redemption is greater than any promotion, any opportunity, any inheritance, any of these earthly things we look forward to. His gift is so much greater. His redemption is awesome. And third, Boaz redeemed temporarily, but Jesus redeems forever. Ruth, Naomi, Obed, Jesse, David, all of them in their graves today. It's the human condition. But Jesus' redemption is not just temporal. It's not just for this earth. You see, friend, when you give your life to Jesus, you are entering the kingdom of God right here and now. It's, it's the beginning stages of what God is going to do through all of eternity. That's why we say your kingdom come, your will be done here on earth as it is in heaven. Here in my heart, in my life, in our church, in our world, as it is in heaven. Boaz he redeemed and he saved life here on this earth. Jesus wants to save you for all eternity. He is the best Boaz you could ever imagine. But you've got to say yes. It's not forced into your life. It's a gift, really. And I'm going to pray in a moment. And I'm going to invite you to pray along with me right there in your hearts and you might pray and ask Jesus to come into your life. If you've never done this, let today be the day of salvation. Maybe you've seen yourself in a new light or you've seen Jesus in a new light. Won't you say yes to him, to give yourself to him? Jesus, I need you. I've been trying to do this on my own and it's not working. There's no way that I can save myself. Even though I may have many successes in life, 
can't experience eternal life without you. Because I've messed up, I've sinned, I've fallen short of your glory. So Jesus, won't you come into my heart? Would you save me? I choose to trust that your sacrifice paid the price that I could never pay. That you have died so that I can be forgiven. So that I can have eternal life. And Jesus, I want you to be my Lord, the leader of my life. I'm tired of trying to run things on my own. I need you. I need you. I want to live for you, Jesus. And I'm going to need your grace to help me through. For it's only by grace through faith that I can be saved. It's your gift. I didn't earn it. And I can't brag about it. Thank you, Jesus, that you do this for us. Thank you for your gift of salvation that is so good. Lord, we love you. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.